0: Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of child death and infanticide that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13.
1: Few things can strike fear into the hearts of new parents like the four
0: letters S-I-D-S. Sudden Infant Death Syndrome, sometimes called crib death, is the unexplained death of an otherwise perfectly healthy newborn, usually while sleeping.
1: It's a terrifying phenomenon that has actually existed for centuries, as far back as the Bible.
0: In the story of King Solomon, two women both claimed to be the mother of the same child. Solomon, to determine which woman was telling the truth, demanded the child be cut in half. It's a story many of us are familiar with. But as it turns out, the entire situation was precipitated by one of the women losing her baby during the night to SIDS. There have been many proposed causes, heart
1: abnormalities, sleep apnea, viral infections, an allergic reaction to cow's milk, smothering and excessive bedding, and vitamin deficiencies. But all of these theories under scrutiny fall apart.
0: Doctors and medical researchers to this day have no concrete answer as to what causes crib death, nor how to completely prevent it. It is a morbid spot of ignorance in our otherwise advanced medical understanding.
1: And for one mother, this unknown became the perfect cover-up for murder.
0: Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Sammy Nye. And I'm Vanessa Richardson.
1: And you're listening to Female Criminals, a ParCast original. This week, we're covering Juanita Hoyt, a housewife and mother who seemingly lost all five of her biological children to SIDS, But new evidence uncovered in the 1990s suggests the children were murdered.
0: At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network.
1: And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com/slash merch for more information.
0: In six and a half years, Juanita Hoyt gave birth to five babies. She buried them all. Afterward, she was seen as the unluckiest woman in the world to have to shoulder such a painful burden of loss.
1: But her grief also protected her from scrutiny. All five deaths were quickly determined to be from natural causes, most likely crib death.
0: 20 years later, with a bit more understanding of SIDS, the children's deaths were re-examined, and Juanita Hoyt graduated from grieving mother to serial killer.
1: This week, we'll explore Juanita's childhood in rural upstate New York. We'll see how she ended up becoming a mother and a killer five times over.
0: Next week, we'll see the investigation two decades later that uncovered the true cause of the Hoyt children's demise and Juanita's resulting criminal trial.
1: Juanita Ethel Nixon was born on May 13, 1946, the fifth of six children. Her parents, Dorothy and Albert Nixon, owned a small dairy farm in Richford, New York, about
0: 50 miles from the Finger Lakes. The six Nixon children had an austere upbringing in the four-bedroom farmhouse. The two boys often hunted rabbits and deer with their father to make sure they had enough food on the table.
1: The four girls helped their mother with traditional domestic activities, cooking, cleaning, and sewing. Juanita, nicknamed Nita, was especially close to her mother, though Dorothy Nixon wouldn't be described as particularly affectionate or maternal.
0: According to Richard Firstman and Jamie Tallon's book The Death of Innocence, Nita heard her mother say countless times that she was put on this earth to bear children and to be a good wife to her children's father. That's it.
1: In spite of her five siblings, or perhaps because of the crowded household, Nita was a quiet, introverted child. She spent her time alone, reading or just
0: staring at the clouds, off in her own world. In 1957, when she was 11, Nita contracted a serious case of the measles. Her mother dutifully stayed at her bedside throughout her illness, caring for her.
1: While she did ultimately recover, the measles damaged her eyesight. Without her glasses, she could only make out shadows.
0: Afterward, according to her siblings, Nita used that and other less serious ailments to gain sympathy and attention from their mother and other family members.
1: Vanessa's going to take over on Juanita's psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show.
0: Thanks, Sammy. Nita may have been exhibiting early signs of fictitious disorder imposed on self, formerly known as Munchausen syndrome. This occurs when a person exaggerates, invents, or self-inflicts illness to gain attention. According to the Cleveland Clinic, while a definitive cause is unknown, children who suffer from severe or chronic illness may develop this syndrome later in life. The fifth of six children, Nita may have sought to regain the undivided attention of her mother she had experienced during her measles bout. In
1: 1960, when Nita was 14, She started high school. She had grown into a pretty teenager, with long, dark curls, but she remained shy and reserved. She didn't participate in extracurriculars and was a middle-of-the-road student. But that wasn't to say she was without interests.
0: Every day, she rode the bus 10 miles to school. The last person to board each morning was 17-year-old Tim Hoyt. Nita was instantly smitten with him, even telling one of her friends... I'm going to marry him someday.
1: Tim later said he noticed Nita eyeing him behind her teardrop-shaped glasses, but didn't say hello because she was clearly so much younger than him.
0: Tim, like Nita, grew up on a dairy farm with several siblings and parents struggling to make ends meet.
1: His father
0: was an alcoholic.
1: Surviving George Hoyt Sr.'s unpredictable and often violent temper, bound the seven Hoyt children together.
0: The effects of an alcoholic parent vary widely from person to person. In a study titled, Personality Subtypes in Adolescent and Adult Children of Alcoholics, researchers reported that environmental and genetic factors play the largest role in the emotional and cognitive well-being of children, and living with an addicted parent is just one factor. With so many siblings and a stable, sober mother, the Hoyt children supported and protected each other fiercely loyal, keeping them generally free from continuing the cycle of addiction.
1: Still, Tim had a more sensitive nature, and his brothers liked to tease him with the nickname Abigail. But his gentle manner matched well with quiet Nita's.
0: They were briefly coupled in the spring of 1961, but when Tim graduated high school a few months later, they broke up he moved to East Orange, New Jersey, where one of his older brothers lived, to find a bigger life.
1: But, unable to find a good job, he returned to upstate New York after a little over a year. In the summer of 1963, he decided to look up Nita again.
0: Now 17 and about to start her senior year of high school, Nita was happy to rekindle the relationship. Soon, they were inseparable. Friends described them as Velcro dolls, always holding hands or touching knees or in some kind of physical contact.
1: Four months later, in December 1963, 20-year-old Tim proposed. Nita's school bus prophecy finally came true.
0: But when Nita told her mother about the engagement, she was less than pleased. Dorothy Nixon, for all her insistence that her daughter's life purpose was to get hitched and have babies, was upset that 17-year-old Nita planned to get married before graduating. She told Nita that if she went through with the wedding, she'd be doing it on her own.
1: Nita called her bluff, so Dorothy kicked her out of the house and said not to bother sending an invitation.
0: It was a blow to Nita, but the large Hoyt brood welcomed her with open arms. She moved into their farmhouse and, for the first month of the engagement, slept in one of Tim's sister's bedrooms.
1: They officially tied the knot on January 11, 1964. Unable to afford to live on their own, Nita moved from the sister's bedroom to Tim's.
0: After the wedding, she returned to high school for the second half of her senior year, but Nita's principal called her to his office he didn't think that she should continue coming to school now that she was married.
1: Apparently, he was worried that she would be a bad influence on the other women in her grade, specifically fearing that she'd tell them about her sexual relations with Tim. Nita was expelled.
0: Just as they had been before the marriage, Tim and Nita remained attached at the hip, But without the distraction of school or a job, Nita's obsession with her husband grew to new levels.
1: The other Hoyts began to notice that, despite her introverted nature, Nita tended to place herself at the center of attention, particularly the center of
0: Tim's attention. In The Death of Innocence, one of Tim's brothers, Chuck Hoyt, recounted an afternoon when he, Tim, and Nita visited a nearby farm to help bale up hay. When they first got to the neighbor's house, they sat on the porch drinking tea.
1: When it was time to go to work, Nita protested, asking Tim to stay with her. But he said no, he needed to help with the hay.
0: When he started to walk away, Nita called after him that she felt faint. When that still didn't stop him, she fell to the ground in a limp heap.
1: Tim looked at her for a moment, then said, I'll let her lay there. She'll wake up in a minute.
0: Sure enough, when she realized no one would come to her aid, Nita picked herself up and disappeared into the house. Just as the Nixon siblings had reported, the Hoyt family
1: noticed that Nita was frequently plagued with minor ailments, both real
0: And imagined. In Charles Hickey's book on Juanita, Goodbye My Little Ones, Chuck Hoyt said, ask Nita how she's doing and she'll say, oh my back aches and my hair is falling out and my ear aches and my toenails are growing crooked.
1: Her frequent and varied ailments became something of a running joke among the Hoyt siblings. Sometimes they'd play a game of nita Titus."
0: One of them would describe made up symptoms of a disease within earshot of Nita, including a fake name. Then they would all wager on how many days it would take before she came down with the same sickness.
1: They did this quietly, without Tim knowing. As strange as Nita was, they knew their brother loved her deeply and wouldn't take kindly to their teasing. He was the
0: sensitive one after all. But the behavior they described is further evidence that Nita may have suffered from fictitious disorder imposed on self. In his research on fictitious disorder, Dr. Christopher Bass of Oxford University Hospital explained that society more readily accepts physical disorders as acceptable entries into the sick role than they do psychological or emotional disorders, or difficulties coping with and adapting to life's troubles.
1: Meaning, if Nita was having emotional difficulties, such as anxiety or depression, she may not have known how to ask for help or support. In 1964, these kinds of emotional diagnoses were not very common or well understood. However, a cold or a flu, everyone is familiar with and will readily offer sympathy, encouraging you to feel better.
0: But if it was attention Nita wanted, she was about to hit the jackpot. The couple announced they were expecting in the spring of 1964, just a few months after their wedding. The entire Hoyt clan fluttered around the expectant mother, giving their hearty congratulations. It was a limelight Nita could get used to. And on October 17th,
1: 1964, after 11 hours of labor, Tim and Nita welcomed their son, Eric. He was a beautiful, perfect healthy little boy.
0: Less than four months later, he'd be gone.
1: Coming up, the young couple searches for answers after the loss of their child. Now, back to the story.
0: On October 17, 1964, 21-year-old Tim Hoyt and his 18-year-old wife, Nita, welcomed their first baby, Eric. He was discharged from the hospital three days after his birth with a perfect bill of health.
1: But for as excited as Nita had been during her pregnancy, the Hoyt family described a somewhat sterile nature to her parenting style. She was fastidious about the clockwork of childcare: the feeding, the burping, the changing. She constantly changed Eric's clothes if they became messy, even his bibs but sometimes it felt like she saw the baby as something to care for rather than about.
0: One of Tim's sisters recalled, she wasn't mushy over him or anything like that. That just wasn't Nita. But God, she had the cleanest kids. Soon after they brought him home,
1: Nita reported that the baby had apnea spells. For reasons unknown, she had seen Eric stop breathing and turn blue.
0: One spell was so severe that Nita called an ambulance, but the doctors at the hospital couldn't give a clear explanation. They prescribed some antibiotics for the baby in case it was related to an infection, possibly pneumonia, but the spells continued.
1: On January 26, 1965, at three months and 10 days old, Eric stopped breathing and couldn't be
0: revived. A neighbor heard Nita screaming for help in the middle of the afternoon. By the time she arrived, Eric was lying still on the table with pink-streaked mucus coming out of his nose and mouth.
1: The neighbor tried administering CPR, but it was too late. The baby was gone.
0: At the hospital, Dr. Arthur Hartnagel, both the coroner and the small town's only doctor, examined Eric and wrote up the death certificate.
1: During a previous visit to the doctor for Eric's apnea spells, Nita mentioned that one of her nephews had died at two months from a heart problem. Between that and the apnea, Dr. Hartnagel listed the cause of death as natural, noting that the boy might've had a heart defect.
0: But no autopsy was performed to confirm. Dr. Hartnagel knew that as tragic as it was, sometimes babies just died for no reason. He offered
1: his condolences and told the Hoyts not to blame themselves.
0: Tim and Nita buried their first son in the Nixon family plot and tried to move on.
1: A month after the funeral, they decided to move out of the Hoyt family farmhouse and into a place of their own. They also started trying for another baby. It would be a fresh start all around.
0: Nita even found employment for the first time. One of Tim's sisters helped her get a job at Endicott Johnson, a shoe manufacturer.
1: But it didn't last. She left after less than a year. Nita said, quote, "'I just couldn't stand the pressure "'of people around me so much.'"
0: Besides, she had other concerns on her mind. By the fall of 1965, she was expecting again.
1: The Hoyt siblings agreed that Nita loved being pregnant. She loved even the possibility of being pregnant. They joked that they could always tell if she and Tim had sex the night before because Nita would wear maternity clothes the next day, already picturing life growing inside her.
0: She seemed capable of imagining a pregnancy just as easily as she did a rare tropical disease. And it's possible it was related to the same need for attention that fed her factitious disorder. Family therapist Bonnie eaker Whale said... Bumpaholics breed to blot out their feelings of insecurity. There's this feeling of being special when you're pregnant. Some women feel like they become ordinary again when not expecting.
1: In addition to the special attention that Nita received, her mother, Dorothy, had embedded into her that her purpose in the world was to procreate. Not only did pregnancy feed her factitious disorder, but it
0: made her feel like she was fulfilling her destiny. In The Death of Innocence, Chuck Hoyt found that Nita was always at her happiest when she was pregnant, but never quite as content once the baby arrived.
1: James Avery Hoyt, Jimmy for short, was born on May 31, 1966. Same as his brother, he was the picture of health, perhaps even more so. Eric's veins had bulged out of his head which some of the Hoyts speculated might have been related to his early death.
0: Jimmy's head was perfect. Given Eric's possible congenital heart defect, the doctor sent Jimmy for an EKG when he was less than two days old, but the tests showed no abnormalities. The young couple, reassured but still wary, took their baby boy home.
1: Again, Nita was businesslike with her childcare. She wasn't a cuddly mother, but she was an excellent burper. Those comforting pats were the time she was most affectionate towards Jimmy.
0: Tim grew especially close with Jimmy. After only a few months, he already resembled his father. At night, when Tim got home from work, he'd scoop his son into his lap and make him laugh with a series of funny faces.
1: There was an omnipresent uneasiness in Jimmy's first few months. All of the Hoyts dreading the possibility that Jimmy may follow Eric to the cemetery. But the months passed. He hit his milestones and they all collectively exhaled when he reached his first birthday.
0: They held a party for him on Memorial Day of 1967. Six months later, Nita was pregnant again. After two boys, she hoped for a little girl.
1: She got her wish on July 17, 1968 a few months after Jimmy's second birthday.
0: Julie Marie Hoyt weighed just under seven pounds when she was born. Loretta Hoyt, Tim's sister-in-law, remembered how Julie's tiny, delicate features made her look just like a doll. Loretta's own baby girl, born a few months before, had been a whopping nine and a half pounder. Julie made her a little jealous.
1: With the birth of their daughter, the pain of Eric's loss was replaced by hope, the little family seemed back on track.
0: But the progress wouldn't last.
1: On September 5th, 1968, Tim left the house early to go to work. He was juggling two different construction jobs to support his brood, meaning longer hours away from Nita. But it was worth it, knowing he was taking care of them.
0: Though he worried that Nita might be feeling a little overwhelmed, A few weeks before, she'd fallen asleep with the baby, and Jimmy had wandered into their bedroom alone.
1: He used the drawers of their dresser as footholds to climb to the top,
0: but then he couldn't get back down. Jimmy tried to jump off, and the fall nearly broke his collarbone. Nita had been so shaken, she'd cried long after the two-year-old was pacified. In the end, it was nothing more than a bad bruise.
1: But still, When Tim got a call at work that something was wrong with one of his children, his heart raced, thinking the doctor might have missed some
0: damage from the fall. To Tim's shock and horror, it wasn't Jimmy, but tiny Julie who was in trouble. When he got to the house, he learned that his daughter was dead at 48 days.
1: Nita reported that she was feeding Julie rice cereal through a bottle when the baby started to choke. Then the skin around her mouth turned blue.
0: She told Jimmy to sit on the couch in the living room and wait while Nita ran with the baby outside, looking for help.
1: She managed to flag down a man driving a garbage truck. But by the time they got back to the house, there was nothing either of them could do.
0: Dr. Arthur Hartnagel was once again tasked with the coroner duties.
1: Again, he elected not to perform an autopsy. He took Nita at her word that the baby choked to death on rice cereal.
0: Although the explanation did strike a few people as odd. How did the baby choke on a piece of cereal that was small enough to fit through the nipple on a bottle? And why hadn't
1: Nita, famed for her burping abilities, been able to dislodge it?
0: But anyone musing these questions held their tongue in the face of Tim and Nita Hoyt's unimaginable anguish. They'd lost not one but two babies in three years.
1: They buried Julie next to her brother, Eric, but didn't place a headstone. The short distance between her birth and death dates was too sad to immortalize.
0: After the funeral, Tim and Nita clung to Jimmy. His sister's passing didn't seem to take too much of a toll on him, too young to understand what had happened.
1: Tim's oldest brother, George Hoyt Jr., recalled that a week after the funeral, Jimmy and George's own son of a similar age were chasing after each other,
0: tearing through the house like squirrels. He remembered the afternoon vividly because it had given him so much reassurance that Jimmy would be the one to survive. He was so healthy, so full of life. There was no way he would join his siblings in the family plot. But George would soon be proven wrong. On Thursday, September 26th, only a few weeks after Julie's death, 25-year-old Tim Hoyt left for work like always. Nita fed Jimmy breakfast and then sent him outside to play.
1: While she was getting dressed, she heard Jimmy calling out to her, running down the hall. As Nita described in Goodbye, My Little Ones, quote, "'I heard this screaming for mommy, "'and I stepped out into the hallway, "'and he collapsed coming
0: up the hallway.'" She said he was bleeding from his nose and mouth, so she scooped him up and ran outside looking for help, rushing to a neighbor's house.
1: She didn't even stop to button her blouse until the neighbor pointed it out to her after she called
0: 911. When the paramedics arrived, they performed CPR, but it didn't have any effect. Jimmy was dead at 28 months.
1: When Dr. Hartnagel got the call about Jimmy, He was dumbfounded. What was happening to the Hoyt children?
0: He was determined to find out. This time, there would be an autopsy. Coming up, Dr. Hartnagel
1: looks for the answers, and the Hoyts continue to try and build a family. Now, back to the story.
0: In September of 1968, 25-year-old Tim Hoyt and 22-year-old Juanita Hoyt lost their two-month-old daughter and -and two-and-a-half-year-old son within weeks of each other. They had previously lost their three-month-old son two years prior. The news of the poor couple who had buried three
1: children in such a short amount of time spread across the small town of Richford. It was shocking and horrible and strange. What could possibly be happening to these babies?
0: Dr. Hartnagel ordered an autopsy for Jimmy's body. He then contacted the police chief, Howard Horton. Three dead children warranted an investigation.
1: Together, they went to the Hoyts' home to tell them they were looking into Jimmy's death more closely. As relayed in The Death of Innocence, Horton explained to them, whenever there's more than one death in a family, the law dictates we have to look into the possibility of foul play.
0: It blindsided Tim and Nita, who were still deeply consumed by their grief. They denied any wrongdoing, offended at the suggestion. They wanted answers just as much as Hartnagel.
1: Horton also confiscated a few items to examine. The cereal Jimmy ate for breakfast, the bowl he ate it out of, other food from the refrigerator, the clothes Jimmy was wearing the morning he died, the diaper pail and diapers, a
0: washcloth, and a box of Julie's clothes. As he walked around the house collecting what he needed, Tim blustered at Horton. He wasn't going to find anything.
1: Jimmy's autopsy was performed only hours after his
0: mother rushed him to the neighbor's house for help. The four-page report noted that, though Nita had described Jimmy bleeding from his nose and mouth, there was no sign of hemorrhaging inside his head. The pathologist did find that
1: Jimmy's adrenal glands were potentially undersized and his thalamus was potentially oversized. Perhaps these discrepancies accounted for his death.
0: However, the report also listed Jimmy's age as four instead of two. The thalamus naturally shrinks over time, so the pathologist's reaction might have been skewed because he thought the body he was examining was older than it actually was.
1: Still... Dr. Hartnagel signed off on the official cause of death as an enlarged thalamus. The diagnosis was bolstered by a somewhat outdated medical theory that sudden infant death could be caused by an enlarged thalamus blocking the airway and causing suffocation. This explanation of SIDS has since been discounted.
0: Police Chief Howard Horton also found no signs of foul play in the items collected from the Hoyt House. The investigation was closed, and it was deemed a tragic but accidental loss. But George Hoyt Jr. just couldn't forget the
1: sight of Jimmy running around his house a few days before he died. Wouldn't he have shown some kind of illness if he had a medical problem? He said in Goodbye, My Little Ones, Here's a kid, rosy cheeks like any other kid, going rippity hell through my house. The picture of health.
0: He confided in a few of the Hoyt siblings that he suspected Nita of killing the children. If she indeed suffered from factitious disorder imposed on self, it's possible that Nita shifted her actions from herself to her children, known as factitious disorder by proxy. In his study of factitious disorder, Dr. Christopher Bass wrote that factitious disorders and malingering behaviors tend to be episodic, situation-specific, and highly dependent on selective interactions with medical, social, or legal professionals, suggesting that they are not clinical states, but rather discrete behavior governed by a cost-benefit analysis.
1: Meaning that someone with factitious disorder will choose when to act out depending on their current situation and what kind of reaction it might garner. With two small children in the house at once, taking all of her and Tim's time and energy, Nita may have been especially vulnerable to her triggers and desire for attention.
0: The chronic apnea spells in her children drew medical attention and concern from the family. The eventual deaths only generated more amplified attention and concern. George Jr. watched as Nita took it all in, sobbing at her children's gravesites, the center of everyone's worry.
1: When the other Hoyt siblings heard George's suspicions that Nita was doing something to cause the apnea spells, not everyone outright disagreed with him.
0: But they collectively kept their suspicions from Tim, who was consumed by grief. He carried the guilt that the children's deaths all happened while he was out at work.
1: However, when Nita announced that they would keep trying for children, Tim's sister Anne tried to dissuade them. She thought they were crazy to have another baby after everything that had happened.
0: She felt like Nita only continued trying for a family because that's what Dorothy Nixon had told her to do. Anne said, she was so close to her mother, trying to please her, and yet her mother shoved her away. She tried and tried to get into her mother's good graces.
1: After a pregnancy ended in a miscarriage, Nita's obstetrician suggested that they look into adoption instead. Both the doctor and the Hoyt's Methodist pastor agreed that continuing to try to conceive was not in the couple's best interest.
0: But her mother's commands to procreate had permeated too deeply into Nita's mind. A month after filing the adoption paperwork, Nita was once again pregnant. They withdrew the application.
1: She gave birth to Molly Marie on March 18, 1970, nearly 18 months after Jimmy and Julie's deaths. The entire Hoyt family was anxious to say the least.
0: Molly was administered every test in the book to check for signs that trouble could be waiting in the wings a chest x ray, kidney function, blood glucose panel, etc. But Molly was determined to be a healthy little girl.
1: After a week at home, Molly had an apnea spell. Nita found Molly asleep in her crib, quiet, blue, and barely breathing. She rushed the baby outside and into the fresh air to revive her.
0: But when they took the baby to the doctor, they found nothing wrong.
1: A few weeks later, she had another spell, so bad that Nita had to perform CPR on the baby. She called 911 and they rushed to the hospital. With the help of an oxygen mask, Molly recovered.
0: Another battery of tests was ordered to try to explain the spells, but no cause could be determined. And during the two days she was in the hospital, Molly didn't have any more apnea bouts. The
1: doctor at the hospital recommended the Hoyts take Molly to see a SIDS specialist and researcher, Dr. Alfred Steinschneider in Syracuse. Steinschneider was running the largest SIDS research project in the country at the time, specifically looking at the link between infant death and apnea.
0: Molly was admitted to the research hospital and fitted with a breathing mask. Anytime she experienced an apnea spell and stopped breathing for 15 seconds or more, an alarm on the machine was triggered.
1: After two days, Dr. Steinschneider noted that Molly frequently suffered mild apnea spells while she slept, one night setting off the alarm 15 times.
0: However, the sensitivity of the apnea alarm was up for debate. Sometimes the alarm was triggered even when a baby was still breathing, just at a rate that was too shallow for the machine to detect it.
1: The nurses monitoring Molly reported that they did have to nudge her foot occasionally to remind her to breathe, but never had to intervene with CPR, as Nita had done, and never saw her face turn blue.
0: As the nurses got to know Molly, they noticed a distance between the baby and Nita. Most mothers they worked with jumped at every opportunity to feed their babies, change them, and hold them. They found comfort in these normal maternal actions in this medical setting.
1: But not Nita. She had to be encouraged to interact with Molly. And when she did, she often held the baby at arm's length instead of close to her chest. The nurses found the behavior odd, but chalked it up to Nita's previous loss. After burying three babies, maybe she was afraid to get close to Molly.
0: After three weeks in Dr. Steinschneider's care, Molly's apnea spells decreased enough that he decided she was ready to leave the hospital. He arranged for the Hoyts to take a breathing machine with an apnea alarm home with them.
1: On May 8, 1970, Seven-week-old Molly returned with her parents, but she was only home three days before she had another serious onslaught of apnea spells.
0: For the next few weeks, Molly cycled in and out of the hospital. She would show improvements with Dr. Steinschneider, then suffer serious spells when she went home.
1: Multiple times, Nita reported that Molly's spells were so bad she needed CPR, but the nurses in the hospital never saw this while the baby was in their care.
0: They also became concerned about the lack of connection between Molly and Nita. Now almost two months old, Molly's social development appeared stunted as if she wasn't receiving regular stimulation and attention.
1: According to Die My Little Ones, the head nurse detailed her concerns in a report, writing, at times, Molly will not respond to her surroundings at all. Her head is turned to the left and she has a glassy stare. At these times, the baby totally lacks affect. She rarely smiles in response to another person. The interaction between mother and baby is almost nil in my opinion.
0: The same nurse expressed her fears about Juanita Hoyt's parenting to Dr. Steinschneider. She added that Molly's extreme apnea spells only happened at home only when she was alone with her mother. No one else had ever witnessed the baby stop breathing for so long that she turned blue.
1: But for whatever reason, the nurse's concerns were not addressed. On Wednesday, June 6, 1970, Molly Hoyt was sent home for the final time with renewed instructions to keep her on the breathing machine while sleeping on her back.
0: Two days later, two-month-old Molly suffered a fatal spell during a nap. Her autopsy revealed nothing, noting a potential hereditary gland problem and possible signs of pneumonia. No further investigation was launched. She was buried in the family plot. Tim and Nita, struggling with doctor bills, couldn't afford a headstone.
1: Yet, for a couple who had suffered so much loss, 24-year-old Nita kept insisting that they needed to build a family. The week after Molly's death, the Hoyts reapplied for adoption.
0: And as they were still in the interview process, Nita again became pregnant. Their fifth child, Noah, was born on May 9, 1971, Mother's Day.
1: Noah was immediately admitted into Dr. Steinschneider's care at the research hospital. For the first two weeks, he showed no signs of apnea spells. After a month, he was sent home, having logged over 800 consecutive hours without a single moment of respiratory distress.
0: Then, his first day home, Noah had a serious bout of apnea, turning dark blue, once again requiring Nita to deliver life-saving CPR. He returned to the hospital for more tests and stayed there for the next several weeks.
1: During Noah's second hospitalization, 28-year-old Tim Hoyt underwent a vasectomy procedure. He felt that whatever was killing his children had to be hereditary, and he couldn't justify passing the disease on to any more innocent babies.
0: Also during this time, the nurses caring for Noah held the same concerns about Nita's connection with her son that they had expressed with Molly, In their notes, they described a mother who didn't interact with her child unless prompted.
1: They also described a strange reaction whenever Tim held the baby. Nita became upset if Tim was overly affectionate with Noah, crossing her arms and glaring, eventually taking the baby out of Tim's arms and sitting on her husband's lap.
0: Eventually, one of the nurses came to the same conclusion that George Hoyt Jr. had reached after Jimmy's death. She told Dr. Steinschneider that she believed Nita was killing her children. But again, these concerns weren't
1: acted upon. Dr. Steinschneider felt that Nita's distant relationship with her child was her reaction to so much loss.
0: Besides, it wasn't his job to judge her parenting style.
1: After spending 78 of his 81 days of life in the hospital, Noah Hoyt was sent home for the final time on July 28, 1971. He died the next morning after suffering an apnea spell during a nap.
0: Another autopsy was performed, but was no more elucidating than the last two. The cause of death was noted as respiratory difficulties, though Noah only suffered severe apnea spells on the four days he was in the sole care of his mother.
1: During the funeral, Nita fainted For a moment, Tim thought he'd lost her too. One thing was certain, there would be no more babies. His vasectomy had seen to that.
0: Psychologist Dr. Stuart Ash studied the emotional impact of SIDS on parents. Through his research, he discovered that the diagnosis was overused as a catch-all whenever a baby's death couldn't be obviously explained. Furthermore, he suggested that possibly as many as 20 percent of deaths labeled as SIDS were in fact cases of infanticide.
1: He argued that the true cause of crib death would never be solved unless doctors acknowledged that some of the cases they were dealing with were not accidental deaths but intentional ones.
0: However, Ash's research received a great deal of pushback. The medical community was unprepared to accept that Some parents could willingly kill their child. The emotions and grief surrounding the death of a child are so great. To accuse a mourning parent of intentionally killing their baby was just a bridge too far for most pediatricians.
1: Ash actually conducted his research around the same time as Dr. Steinschneider. He reached out to Steinschneider to discuss his sleep apnea findings. But after hearing Ash's hypothesis, Steinschneider declined an invitation to collaborate.
0: A few months after Noah's death, Tim and Nita once again pursued adoption. She truly believed that she was meant to be a mother and eventually wore Tim down. On November
1: 19, 1971, just under four months after Noah's death, they welcomed a nine-month-old baby into their home, Scotty.
0: But a few days later, on the eve of Thanksgiving, Nita had a nervous breakdown over the baby, pleading with Tim to take Scotty away from her because she was sure she was going to hurt him.
1: She told Tim she was cursed and that it was her fault the other children had died.
0: When he was unable to calm his wife down, he called the emergency line for the county's psychiatric services. Nita was admitted that night. The psychiatrist
1: tried to unpack Nita's fears. What exactly did she think she might do to the
0: baby? Nita allegedly replied, quote, I feel as though I would like to wring his neck.
1: The next day, Scotty returned to the adoption agency. Nita remained in therapy for the next year and a half. She was medicated for depression for the first time in her life and found good results with her treatment. She and Tim also agreed to stop pursuing a family.
0: In October of 1972, Dr. Steinschneider published his findings on the link between SIDS and sleep apnea in Pediatrics magazine. Molly and Noah Hoyt were used as the hallmark cases, as well as three other children who had been saved by the use of apnea alarms.
1: His research revolutionized the way many doctors approach SIDS, adopting his suggestion that babies should sleep on their backs in a room that is no warmer than 75 degrees. He also recommended in-home apnea monitors. He was named to the advisory board of the National Foundation for Sudden Infant Death.
0: Nita Hoyt joined him for several panel discussions, sharing her experiences in losing her five children. She became a central figure of the future of SIDS research. A morbid symbol to rally around that something had to be done to stop this awful epidemic.
1: One woman who met her at a Sid support group said, Sorrowness enveloped her. It emanated from her being.
0: Every year on Memorial Day, Nita and Tim drove to the family plot with five small bouquets of flowers. With tears in their eyes, they laid the flowers on the graves of their children.
1: Neighbors reported that for many years, Nita wasn't able to be around small children without becoming emotional, especially little girls. She continued to blame herself for their passing, to which neighbors and friends would immediately contradict and comfort her.
0: But in 1992, the narrative of the Hoyt children would change. When prosecutor William Fitzpatrick heard about their five untimely deaths, An alarm bell went off inside him. One death
1: was tragic. Two was suspicious. Three was a homicide. The Hoyts had lost five. Something was going on.
0: Fitzpatrick asked, how could this be the killing of five children, obvious to anyone, going undetected? Determined to
1: find out, he opened a file on 46-year-old Juanita Hoyt. And, as he'd soon discover, this tragic figure was a serial killer in disguise.
0: Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back Wednesday with part two of Juanita Hoyt. We'll follow William Fitzpatrick's investigation, as well as the criminal trial that followed.
1: You can find more episodes of Female Criminals, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, on Spotify or your favorite podcast directory.
0: Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review.
1: And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast, and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time.
0: Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Andy Waits, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Liebeskind. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Female Criminals is written by Abigail Cannon and stars Vanessa Richardson and Sammy Nye.